Yeah, so once again, thanks for coming out today. It's holiday weekend, and uh, get the season started off with some super somber Christmas music. Oh, oh it's not. <laughs> I, I have to say, I chose the songs this week <laughs> and gave them to Richard. And he's like, <laughs> one thing we've known, like, we've sang these songs our whole life, and, like, we don't know the words to, like, any Christmas hymns. Like, what? So, yeah. Uh, we, know, we know it's Christmas season because I shaved last night, and I woke up this morning, and I was like, <laughs> Oh my goodness, it's happening again. That was a terrible joke, okay. Um, <laughs> it's a Malin movie, anyone? No, uh, no I'm glad, tomorrow's Monday. Uh, thank God it's Monday. Um, but I'm also glad because it's December 1st and I get to shave the no-shave November. So very excited. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter two. And uh, this is the first Sunday in Advent, and so if you've grown up around the church, grown up around, yeah, whether it's Catholic, Protestant, most of the Christian tradition celebrates this season called Advent, and one of the ways that we do it is, uh, symbolically, we light a candle for Advent. We're not going to do that. Um, I'm not even sure if these candles are allowed to be lit because it's a school that we're in, but what we do want to talk about is what these candles represent as we head towards Christmas, and uh, so today we want to talk about the, the Advent candle that represents joy. And so we want to look at the first Christmas story ever and uh, talk about how the first Christmas in history, how that influences our first Christmas as a church. And so that's kind of what the, the theme of this series is going to be. It's how does the first Christmas story influence us, our first Christmas as a church? And so I just wanted to start in Luke chapter 2 and uh, read it and then give some thoughts on it. And then, um, and then we'll, uh, yeah, keep moving. So... In Luke chapter 2, I put the words up here, but they're kind of small. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 2, it starts off with this verse. It says in verse 1, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So with this census, what we find is there's also taxes that were being taken. So the first Christmas story starts off with taxes, and that's real depressing. So, so Joseph, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room in the inn. Verse 8 goes on to say, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said, Do not be afraid. I will bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Uh, so, you guys heard that story before, I'm sure. We hopped right into the Christmas story. We skipped some of the stuff leading up to it and just dove right in. But I, I love this story because in the story, you've got basically these angels that, that break into the scene. You find out, like, Joseph and Mary go. They have their kid. And then there's these shepherds that are there, and the angels break in, and they basically have these words proclaiming what's happening, proclaiming the significance of this moment. And the words of the angels are simple. The words of this angel is, I bring you good news 
that will cause great joy for all people. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. I can't imagine what the setting was like. If you're shepherds, you're out watching the flock. You probably have uh, some people standing, some of the shepherds standing guard, making sure some wolves don't come in. You have some shepherds that are probably sleeping. You're out in this field in the countryside. And then all of a sudden, the heavens open up and this angel comes with this proclamation. I bring you good news that will cause great joy and it's for all people. So the first Christmas story, the first Christmas story is about good news, first and foremost. It's about this idea of good news. Good news uh, is, is always great to have, right? Good news. We always want good news. To, 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 to receive good news is something that keeps us settled, keeps us at peace. It's encouraging. When we look at this idea of good news, when we look at the, the world that we live in, what we find is, once again, this story opens up with this guy named Caesar Augustus. And if you look at the world that this good news is received in, uh, Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the world, who, looking kind of at the historical context, what we find is that Rome is control of most of the known world at this time. There was a, uh, a man before Caesar Augustus named Julius Caesar that basically takes control of the empire. At some point, Elizabeth Taylor gets involved. It gets weird. Um, <laughs> they have a kid. The kid doesn't inherit the throne, but Caesar Augustus, the nephew, does. And, and this is a very powerful personality. Not only does he kind of consolidate control, but he thinks very highly of himself. And so as he uh, kind of uses himself to, to control the world, he builds himself up to become kind of like this, this God here on earth. And so he uses this language of, this idea that, that he is the son of the gods sent here to rule over the world. He has a little bit of an ego to say that, just a bit. And, uh, and also, there was this horrible civil war in, uh, in the Roman Empire, and he brings peace. And so he has a title. He calls himself the Prince of Peace. And his rule, he keeps control by oppressing people, keeps control by his military power. And the story takes place in kind of this corner of this empire that's conquered by this Roman ruler named Caesar Augustus. And the God's people, Mary and Joseph, who are living in Israel at the time, are conquered by the Romans. And so there's this great anticipation that someday this, this oppressor who, who thinks that he's a god, there's someday they're going to be delivered from this oppressor. So there's this, this hope, this anticipation that someday God's going to come and just deliver his people from the oppressor of the, the great and powerful emperor of the world. And so when there's this good news that comes for them, there's good news that this world that we live in is about to change. And the systems of the world that are so oppressive are about to get destroyed. The other thing with this word good news is if we look deeper into what good news is, it's actually a term that Caesar Augustus would use. And it comes from his own language. It's, it's uh, maybe you've heard it, it's good tidings. It's a great message. It comes from the Greek word euangelizo or euangelion, which means a great message. It's this gospel that Caesar Augustus would use when he would basically win some sort of battle. This announcement that would go out, this good news that Rome had saved the day again and had this great victory. And then these angels come and say, we've got good news of a different kind of story of a different kind of leader that's going to change everything. So they basically like hijack this term of good news. 
Good news, uh, what we find is throughout the New Testament, they start using this language, this good news that there's a different king that's here. That was the announcement of Christmas. That was the announcement to this world that was controlled by a God, a guy that thought he was God, that there's good news, that there's this new king coming to the throne. So the first Christmas good news is actually a very huge political and religious statement that is proclaimed in this story. What we find is that it's such a significant statement, it's such a radical statement that it goes on to get Jesus killed, but that's for Easter, and we'll get to that later. But this idea of good news for them, that there's this new victory, there's this new king, and he's on the throne, and his name is Jesus. We call this the gospel. The gospel is this proclamation that God, through his son Jesus, is king. For me, the first time understanding what that news was in my own life, when I came to basically decide to have my allegiance to God over anything else in this world, the first time I'd heard that news was at the age of five. My mother told me, which is interesting, my dad's a preacher and a pastor, but I first heard this good news through, through my mom. And for me to understand that, to experience what this good news is, that there's this different king that's on the throne, and we live in this world uh, that's controlled by all sorts of different systems, and we live in a country that's free, but all sorts of different systems that can actually oppress us and keep us, keep us uh, really uh, discontent. There's this other kind of life that we can choose to follow God through his son Jesus. I learned that at the age of five. And then for me, as I got older and started to explore what this good news was of Jesus, I started to understand more and more what this gospel was, this proclamation that there's a different kind of king that's on the throne. And as I would explore basically what that news was, I started to fall in love with this idea of this new kingdom that's being established here and now on earth as it is in heaven. And for me, that was very meaningful, and I started to pursue more and more this good news. And this is what the first Christmas story is all about, this good news that there's a different kind of king and there's a different kind of kingdom that's being established right here and right now. And it's a simple proclamation, Christmas is good news. Second thing is that not only is it good news, it's good news of great joy. Christmas is good news that's being proclaimed that will bring great joy. And so joy, joy is something that when we hear of a victory, we celebrate. When U of A BASU this week, like four people in this room had great joy. Who had great joy? We've got some U of A fans, one in the back. Uh, what was that experience like when, when U of A upset ASU? Because it wasn't really an upset. Something inside of you leaps, right? For me, it's the same way when the Suns win anything, especially when they beat the Lakers. There's this, this joy that wells up inside of me. But joy, joy is something that we celebrate. We celebrate victory. And this is good news, Christmas, of great joy. And joy is something that's very significant for the follower of Jesus. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is evidence of God's presence in our life here and now. And so we talk about joy as an emotion. It's something that is happiness, but it's deeper. It's more than that. And the first time I experienced joy, I think this kind of meaningful joy, which is, is more than just an emotion that's spiritual, I was able to compare it to happiness. Happiness is this emotion that is oftentimes affected by something on the outside. It could be our circumstances. It could be the people around us. 
It could be something that we just try to choose to do. Happiness is something that is affected by the outside world. What I've found is joy is something that's affected by what God has done or what God is doing in my life. And so for me, when I had first started to kind of pursue what it meant to follow Jesus, to hear this good news of this other kind of kingdom, and it started to kind of weave into the fabric of my life and the rhythm of my life and starting to understand what it means to follow Jesus, it got really real for me when I was 17 years old. And I think it was when I started to experience joy and the joy of following God. So when I was 17 years old, I played basketball at a local private school that was really good at basketball. And we ended up winning a state championship when I was a junior. And it was one of those like, you know, big fish in a small pond kind of thing. So I like to toot my horn about it, but it really wasn't that big of a deal. But at 17 years old, to win this 2A state championship in Arizona was like a huge, huge significant event for me. And so it, it, it was something that my buddies and I, we had worked hard in the off season. We had worked hard as we went through the season. We were underdogs and weren't expected to win. And I remember working, uh, that was the hardest I'd ever worked for anything at that point in life, to completely pour myself into basketball and, and all of the practices and waking up at 5 a.m. And, and all of the, basically getting my body into a certain kind of shape that can play high school basketball was absolutely exhausting. It was hard work. And then it was winning the championship when no one thought that we could win it. One of the most rewarding experiences of my life. And so for me, it was this, this unbelievable happiness that came when you work hard for something and then your phone goes off. I appreciate <laughs> when you work hard for something and then you, you achieve it, there's this unbelievable satisfaction that comes with that and this happiness. And so at this small school, what we would do, uh, it was a Christian school. And so for kind of around, right around spring break every year, they'd go on this mission trip. And we would go to Juarez, Mexico. And Juarez is one of the most dangerous cities in North America. And so the school thought, that's a great idea. Let's send a bunch of high schoolers to Juarez <laughs> on a mission trip. And we left the day after we won the state championship. And so for me, winning the state championship, being in the newspaper, I was like about as high as you can get, just unbelievable happiness, satisfaction, achievement, all of these things, and then going to war as Mexico and working basically in these, in these slums in, in Mexico, in Juarez, working with the least of these, working with children who didn't have parents and were orphans, working with prisoners in, in, in a jail and walking alongside them, working with drug addicts and as they had recovered, worshiping with them, serving them. Pretty significant culture change from getting to play at America West Arena the, work, the week before. It was America West Arena back then, U.S. Airways Center, where the Suns play. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> but going from that experience, then going to, to Mexico was absolutely humbling. At the same time, it was also something else that was happening inside of me as I got to participate in seeing what this good news looks like when it's played out, when it's put into action in a very dark place in the world. And so participating in what the church can be and can do in an area that's as oppressive and violent and, yeah, just uh, dangerous as war as Mexico. So that was hard work being there all week. And what I had found is that through being in that environment, working alongside the church there, to be a light in a very dark place was a different kind of work, a different kind of energy that was pulled out of me. 
and it was also a different kind of, I think, a, a reward of working with people that you know you're making an influence on their life, and that influence has a chance to, to basically go into eternity. So you're making this eternal difference with people. Di- completely different kind of satisfaction that came from that. And so what I had found was that satisfaction was much deeper. It was something inside of me that was much more personal, had depth to it. And it was weird because it wasn't anything that we could do to achieve working alongside these people that were completely kind of on the underside of, of the systems of this world, people that were in poverty. But that experience, the joy that came from that was so much more than happiness. And it wasn't about what we had done. It was about what God was doing. And so for me to experience that, that feeling, that emotion, that wasn't just an emotion caused by something on the outside. It was this, I would say, this spiritual fruit, this evidence that God was in my life, that God was working in the world around me. And I think that is the kind of joy that we have with this good news the kind of joy that's not just dependent on our circumstances, but the joy that's dependent on what God is doing in our world and what God has done in our world. So there's this difference between joy and happiness. And I think when the angels come and they talk about this good news of great joy, this is what they're talking about, this deep spiritual feeling or emotion that is beyond happiness, that is beyond our circumstances, because it's all about what God is doing and what God has done in the world. So joy is so much more than happiness. And joy is what today represents in the Advent candle, this idea that there's this great joy, this tidings of great joy that God has come. He has not given up on the world. He has come through Jesus. That joy comes. Joy versus happiness. Yeah, so joy, what I've also found is that joy is a defining characteristic of a follower of Jesus. And, and we see the story in Isaiah in the Old Testament, where oftentimes Isaiah is projecting what it's going to be like when the Savior comes. It says, the Lord, the ransomed of the Lord will return. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Gladness and joy will overtake them, those who have been ransomed. Talking about those who are in exile. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Uh, Peter, who was very close to Jesus, when Jesus walked this earth, when he writes this letter, reflecting on his time with Jesus, he's writing to this new church, and he talks about this idea of being filled with inexpressible and glorious joy in his life, which if you follow the life of Peter, is pretty significant because he's like constantly getting it wrong, constantly in trouble, denying Christ, doing all sorts of stuff, sinking when he's supposed to be walking along. You know, all, all, all these. He talks about being filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. And then in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about He's talking about this church that has gone through just, just something devastating. He says, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy welled up in rich generosity. I'm talking about their experience of going through this difficult thing had prepared them to be basically just a blessing to others. So I love these ideas of, of joy, glorious and inexpressible, overflowing joy welled up inside of these followers of Jesus. This defining characteristic of followers of Jesus, of a church, is joy, is joy, which sometimes can be hard to understand when you hang out with followers of Jesus because I'm a pretty depressed dude. And 
This isn't something that you would, when you think of Jared, you think of inexpressible and glorious joy, right? And, but it's something also that, that I feel like I'm working on. What does it mean to receive this good news that causes great joy? So for the follower of Jesus, joy is a defining characteristic. And joy is something that we experience at Christmas. Not what we've done, but what God has done and what God is doing. As a pastor, I've gone through some counseling. Some of it has been for my own personal life and marriage, and some of it is like ministry counseling. And so if you've ever gone through counseling, what, what the counselor does is he basically dissects everything that's going on in your life. It makes you feel absolutely terrible about yourself and then rebuild, <laughs> rebuilds up a new identity that's not found in your own accomplishments. And so, yeah, I've gone through some counseling. <clears throat> it's been good. But here's one of the things that I found through my counseling as, as a leader and as a pastor. And this is a little sidetracked, by the way, but we have a special guest here today. His name is Mark and Shannon Krenz. just wanted to point them out because he's helped me kind of process my own. <laughs> Mark is a new pastor at McDowell Mount Community Church. It's one of our sister churches. So I just wanted to point that out. But with my own, okay, so my, my own problems that Mark's actually helped me with in this journey is as I've struggled as a leader, one of the things that I've identified in my own life is that I've got a very average emotional intelligence. Does anyone know what emotional intelligence is? Yes, okay, EQ. It's kind of this new thing that psychologists are saying is like a really big deal. They're actually saying your EQ is more important than your IQ when it comes to the working world, the corporate world that you live in. And so I've been identified as a very average EQ, which isn't like a poor EQ, but it's also not like a high EQ. So it's a really flat EQ. Yeah, I'm real, yeah, just a real ordinary, uh, yeah. Uh, So my emotional intelligence. And so basically what your EQ does it allows you to identify your own emotions and, and manage them and also recognize emotions in other people and help manage those. And like walking into a room and understanding kind of what the emotions of the room are and understanding how to interact with people because of that. And so like as they're explaining to me like my average emotional intelligence, I'm thinking like, man, you make me sound like Dexter. Like, like I can't, like if you know who Dexter is, I, I can't process things. And, and so this can get me in trouble sometimes, as Marcy can attest to, just understanding emotions of a room. But, but one of the things that I've learned about this emotional intelligence is that, that people who are healthy emotionally actually have this characteristic. They're, they're, they tend to be joyful people. They tend to be not necessarily optimistic or positive, but just joyful people. They're able to handle situations, take them in stride, and understand that life's not necessarily all about them. They don't internalize. They don't get easily offended. They're, they're, they generally have a, a good, healthy outlook on life. And, and so as I had kind of started to study this emotional intelligence thing, I started tapping into, wow, people who are emotionally intelligent tend to be joyful people, which is interesting because joy is this spiritual fruit that we talk about throughout Scripture. And people who are emotionally intelligent tend to be joyful. And as I had kind of studied basically a little bit about emotional intelligence, I just wanted to read something that I had found. And I don't know if you're allowed to just like read out of a book during a sermon, but like we're a church plant, so I'm going to. Uh, But it talks about emotions spread like viruses. Emotions spread like viruses, but not all emotions spread with the same ease. A study at Yale University School of Management found that among working groups, cheerfulness and warmth spread most easily, while irritability is less contagious and depression depression spreads hardly at all. 
which is interesting to me because I absorb depression like a sponge. Yeah, this great uh, diffusion rate for good moods has direct implications for organizations and results. Moods, the Yale study found, influence how effectively people work. Upbeat moods boost cooperation, fairness, and business performance. Laughter, in particular, demonstrates the power of connecting with others. Hearing laughter automatically, or well, we automatically smile or laugh too, creating a spontaneous chain reaction that sweeps through a group. The result is positive emotional hijacking. <laughs> so, uh, similarly, of all emotional signals, smiles are most contagious. They have an almost irresistible power to make others smile in return. Smiles may be so potent because of their beneficial role that they played really in the evolutionary process. Smiles and laughter, scientists speculate, evolved as a nonverbal way to cement alliances, signifying that an individual is relaxed and friendly rather than guarded and hostile. I think this is interesting, by the way, so I'm reading it. Laughter offers a uniquely trustworthy sign of friendliness, unlike other emotional signals, especially a smile, which can be feigned, laughter involves highly complex neural systems that are largely involuntary. It's harder to fake. So whereas a smile might easily slip through our emotional radar, a forced laugh has a hollow ring. So laughing represents the shortest distance between two people. I love that idea. Laughing represents the shortest distance between two people. And this is what I think joy does for us. It allows us to connect with others on, in a way that is influential and can impact others. And when we talk about this message of, of the good news that will cause great joy, we have to ask the question, are we joyful people? Are we able to connect through others because of this spiritual fruit in our life of joy? And so what I found also, if you go to the next slide, uh, th that's this whole open loop theory, that laughter resonates with people. Joy resonates with people. And then what I found is that there's a smile that helps you connect, but then there's laughter, um, and then there's the deep belly laugh. And that's when you know like you're just really connecting with others, is this deep belly laugh. And so something happened this week with my youngest son, Ezra. He's 11 months old, and he was being babysat by his aunt, and she captured this picture of him. So I wanted to show this video real quick, and just think about what stirs inside of you when you see this and hear this. it one more time. <laughs> right. It's like great Dred's family videos. Um, but, but there's something when you see that, when you hear that, that deep belly laugh that resonates, something resonates, you just enjoy it. Like there's no way to be cynical towards it. There's no way to be negative. There's no way to say, you know, there's any, any kind of like false intentions from this child. There's something that resonates in the deep belly laugh. And I think this is the inexpressible kind of joy that's experienced in life to sit down, to enjoy life, to hear that. And this is why I think it's important. We talk about this idea that Christmas is about this good news, that this new king is coming, that this new kingdom is coming, and that will cause great joy. And I think as a church, the good news is not spread with guilt, fear, or shame. It is spread with great 
inexpressible joy. And that is what Christmas is about. The good news is not coerced. It's not something that we use to manipulate people. It's not something that we use to shame people, which oftentimes in Christian circles, it can turn into that. But it's to be spread with great and inexpressible joy. Joy resonates with people. And we think about our work, our story, following Jesus. When we are joyful, when we spread the joy around, that is something that can influence a community. This is the story that we belong to, and it should cause us to be joyful. And joy resonates with others. And then finally, this great joy, this great unexpressible, inexpressible joy, is for all people. I love that that's what the angel says. It's for all people. Not just certain people that look a certain way, act a certain way, vote a certain way, dress a certain way. The good news that causes great joy is for everyone. Everyone has to hear it. Think about this idea. All people. Everyone gets in on it. Everyone um, is pursued by God in this world. No one is off limits. And so even as a church, when we think about spreading this message with joy, our target audience is people. All people. All people. This is good news that causes great joy for all people. So when you think about just your own life individually, what this means to hear this good news that causes great joy for all people. When you think about us corporately as a church, good news, great joy for all people. This influences how we interact with this neighborhood for the Christmas season. Uh, this story talks about the angels and shepherds, and the angels and shepherds spread the news. The angels, who are these heavenly divine beings that we're not even sure how to understand who they are, what they are, they're majestic. And then these shepherds, uh, which in this culture, shepherding was a kind of a humble job. It's not something that you're, you're you know, super excited to say, hey, mom, I became a shepherd. When we look at even kind of the psychology of the shepherd in this culture, it's kind of the lowest, one of the lowest on the totem pole of, of occupations. But they have a place in the story because they respond to God's call to spread the news. So angels in the heavenly realms and lowly shepherds, humans, people like you and me are able to spread this news. So today, the challenge is to spread joy this Christmas season as a church. One of the very practical ways that we're going to do that is on December 14th in the park. I invite you to do that. But also individually, what does that look like for you to spread joy this Christmas season? Um, and so I just want to take some time to reflect. And as we kind of move toward communion, Richard's going to come back and end this with a song. Think about your own life. Think about the Christmas season and joy that you experience. And I want to just basically pr pray two prayers and give you a chance to kind of respond in two ways as we close. Uh, the first prayer comes from David, who was also a king. In Psalms, he writes this. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Maybe uh, you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, and uh, this idea of joy is completely absent from your life. Maybe it's been robbed by certain things. Whatever, whatever has robbed joy from you, maybe it's comparing your life to other people. Maybe it's a sense of entitlement. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's the world not working the way that you've wanted it to work. What ways today do you need to allow God to just restore into you the joy of this good news, the joy of your salvation. My prayer for you is that God would restore it today. Restore 
unto me. And then in Isaiah, there's this, this passage, this invitation to the thirsty. And I actually just want to read these words, and then we'll close with this. Isaiah 55, it says, Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you, you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good. And then it goes on to say this, you'll go out in joy, You'll be led into a whole and complete life, and the mountains and hills will lead the parade bursting with song. This idea of joy, inexpressible joy, overwhelming us. So my prayer for you today is that your joy would be restored. Also, maybe you're weary, maybe you come in here, maybe you've never experienced the joy of Christ, that you would experience it for the first time, and that it would be something that just overflows from your life that it would be something that resonates with other people, God's presence in your life, evidence of him, and uh, that you would take that joy and you would spread it this Christmas season. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for gathering us here, Lord. We thank you for these just meaningful meetings of the church. As we gather in this room, as we think about our identity as as a new community, as we think about what you've called us to, this first Christmas, Lord, we want to be a joyful people. We, we hear this good news, and it causes great joy. Lord, I just ask that we would come to understand what that joy is in our life, that we would experience the joy that comes with your presence, that comes with you being with us, and just the, uh, the craziness of our broken world that we know that there's a new king that's coming, a new king that offers us life, a new king that offers us something different, something real, something eternal, that we would tap into that joy, Lord, that that joy would not be circumstantial for us. It would be all about what you've done and what you're doing in this world. And Lord, I just pray that we would spread joy in everything that we do, that we would enjoy our friends and family, Lord, that we would laugh, the deep belly laugh, and that you would resonate with us and with others. In your son's name we pray, amen.